This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And it is so good to be here catching up with you this afternoon. This hour, you will spend a little bit of time in the south of the state, just taking a look around at a few farms that are experiencing firsthand the change in the climate, Uh, especially when you look at the rainfall figures. There's really no denying the changes that are going on in some parts of Western Australia. And how are those farmers, how are those farming businesses coping and adapting with those sort of changes. That's after the news headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology. Shortly, a look at those skyrocketing fertiliser prices and also off to the GRDC Grain Research Updates, which kick off today in Perth. The first session's already done and dusted. Tara DeLandcraft is there and you'll hear from her shortly, just some of the key talking points so far anyway. First up, though, fishing and aquatic groups are bracing for the impact of a marine heat wave that's taking place right now off the Western Australian coast. Now, in some localised areas along a stretch of the coast from Broome to Rottnest Island, the water temperature is up to two degrees warmer than normal for this time of year. And even a small change like that, just two degrees, can have a devastating impact on marine biodiversity, reefs, aquaculture and fisheries. You remember back in 2011, that marine heatwave caused widespread coral bleaching, seagrass damage and fish kills at Shark Bay and the Ningaloo Coast. So with the latest on this current marine heatwave, here's Lucinda Jose. On land, a heatwave is three or four days of temperatures in the 40s. But in the ocean, water just one degree warmer than normal can have a devastating effect on marine life. That increase in temperature of between one to two degrees is equivalent to about three or four hundred kilometres of range. That means that animals and plants that normally do well three or four hundred kilometres north are now moving south to the Geraldton region. Animals and plants that do well in Geraldton are now being stressed by those temperatures and some of them may be moving further south to escape. The CSIRO used computer modelling to produce a world-first accurate forecast of a marine heatwave in November last year. Oceans and Atmosphere research scientist at CSIRO, Dr Alastair Hobday, says early in January their prediction began to play out. This marine heatwave began on January the 6th and has oscillated and it's kind of like a blob that gets bigger and smaller. But now it's about two degrees warmer than average and it's slightly off the Western Australian coast at the moment. But we expect it to arrive at the coast in the next uh, weeks and months. Are there pockets that are hotter than other areas? We classify marine heat waves as moderate, strong or extreme, just as you might classify cyclones. And at the moment, this is just a moderate marine heat wave with pockets of strong activity. Fish and animals that can move will seek out cooler waters. It's one of the reasons whale sharks were spotted near Rockingham more than a 1,000 kilometres from their home earlier this year. But for sea life that can't move, like mollusks, seagrass and kelp, 
Sustained warm temperatures are a real problem. UWA Professor of Marine Ecology Dr Thomas Wernberg specialises in marine plant life. His team are currently surveying seagrass and kelp plants to monitor the impact of the heatwave. Kelp forests and our seagrass beds in Western Australia experienced very substantial negative impacts of the 2011 marine heatwave and they have not recovered yet fully 10 years later. It's clear that organisms that cannot move away from the location they're found in um, will have to endure whatever conditions um, arrive at, at that site, so therefore they are somewhat susceptible. Something that's a bit of an issue in uh, Western Australia is that our kelp forest and seagrass, uh, many of the seagrass beds we have, are cool water species that are found at the northernmost or warmest um, latitudinal distribution um, around the Shark Bay, Pilbara area. And that means that that particular region is very susceptible to, uh, to uh, elevated temperatures. The marine heatwave is expected to be the strongest since 2011, when ocean temperatures in localised waters climbed by up to 5 degrees for days at a time. The warm water had a major impact on scallop spawning, with the $6.5 million Shark Bay and Abrolhos Islands scallop fisheries closed for four and five years respectively. Scallop fisher and managing director of McBoats, Peter McGowan, says the impact was not immediately obvious. In 2011, we had a, a fair amount of scallops at the Abrolhos Islands and uh, a few in Sharks Bay, but it affected their spawning season and neither spawned that year. So the next year, there was actually zero scallops anywhere on this west coast. It killed the whole lot. The fisheries couldn't even find five or ten scallops at the islands on one survey. At one stage, the fisheries were even talking. It, it was so big, it was almost like an extinction event that it happened. But the humble scallop did somehow survive and respawned and it got back seven years later, back to quite good numbers at the Abrolhos. The arrival of the warm water earlier this year makes this the first time a marine heatwave has been accurately predicted anywhere in the world. As climate change sees oceans operating on elevated baseline temperatures, forecasts like this one are expected to become increasingly important for ocean users. Marine heat waves are a great concern for our coastal environments and marine environment in general, especially since we have seen quite substantial impacts of extreme events such as the 2011 marine heat wave. All of the projections uh, so far suggest that these events will become more and more frequent, they'll become more and more intense as we go into the future. And that means the marine life will have less and less opportunity to recover uh, between the blows that they experience from these marine heat waves. In the long run, that is likely to have substantial impact on uh, our coastal environments and, and marine biodiversity. Essentially, we're watching climate change, the impact of climate change happening in real time. University of Western Australia Professor of Marine Ecology, Dr Thomas Wernberg. And you can read more about this online right now. Just search Marine Heat Wave WA-ABC. That's Marine Heat Wave WA-ABC. 12 past 12. And in other fishing news today, an independent advisory group is going to take a look at the biosecurity risks of imported raw prawns after Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud challenged his own department to prove it's got the science right. Prawn farmers and a leading aquatic diseases expert have warned the government that imported prawns need to be cooked to stop the deadly white spot disease 
or any other aquatic diseases getting into Australia. David Littleproud says the Independent Advisory Group is basically going to run a ruler over the department's protocols. I want to have confidence and I know the industry want to have confidence that what the Department of Agriculture is doing in reviewing its its protocols for, for prawn imports and seafood imports is, is appropriate. It's tested. We've had an incursion. Uh, they are not beyond reproach to the department and that's why I want to give myself the comfort and I think the industry deserves it to have preeminent experts, scientific and technical experts to come together and, and effectively check the department's homework. In the government's draft review of biosecurity risks posed by imported raw prawns, the government's scientists haven't recommended cooking raw prawns, but high-risk raw pork, poultry and beef isn't allowed into Australia because of the risk of introducing disease. Why should prawns be treated any differently? Well, that's what I want to get tested. I'm concerned by that and I just want to get an appreciation of how the department got to that assessment. Uh, I think it's it's only right that we do. We've got to put our hand up. They they made a blue and, and we've had an incursion. Uh, and my job is to make sure that they're doing the regulatory piece right. Uh, and I don't have that confidence at the moment. And that's why I, I want to get that by bringing in an expert panel that can exactly answer that question. How quickly will this independent advisory group be formed? And how soon would you like the review to be finalised? Uh, it has already been formed. Uh, and it will, in fact, report back late April. Independent scientist Dr Ben Diggles, who advises the prawn farming industry, has said that it's just a few prawns out of every shipment that get checked. So there's so much risk of disease coming in at the moment. What's being done about that? You've got to understand only a small percentage of whether it's prawn or any product that's imported, whether it be agricultural or not, brought into this country is tested. You simply cannot physically test every piece. That is something you cannot undertake. So what what biosecurity works on is risk assessments and risk assessments are predicated around intelligence. So we garner intelligence from around the world of where, where threats are that could emanate if we would bring product, not only just agricultural product, but all our inputs. And then obviously we focus our resources in on that. So we've surged more resources into particularly where we've seen that intelligence tell us that there is an issue in particular countries. And in fact, we're also broadening that. We just put an extra $14.5 million to even look at containers to actually understand where the containers in which this product is coming from as well. Because while they might be coming from a country uh, in this voyage that, that doesn't have a risk, they uh, could be in their voyage or two before have come from a country that does pose us a risk. So we're using intelligence and technology to make sure that we uh, deploy our resources appropriately. But to say that we can test every product, we cannot. Minister Littleproud, would you agree at the moment, though, that it's a bit of a ticking time bomb because they do believe that White Spot got into the environment because fishers were using supermarket prawns as bait and the surveys that the Queensland government has done have proven that, that people admit that they buy those cheap supermarket prawns and prawn products for bait and burley. And that is exactly why I want this expert panel to challenge what the department has come back I don't have the technical expertise myself, but I have enough of this thing called common sense to be concerned about what the department has done, and I want them challenged. Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud with Jennifer Nichols. 16 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Local Radio WA. 
Shortly off to the GRDC Grains Research Updates. It's a two-day update and it kicked off this morning in Perth, catching up with Tara DeLandgraaf shortly. First, though, global fertiliser prices have skyrocketed in recent months, with some phosphate products up by as much as 36%. And that's not good timing for many Australian farmers who are looking to buy fertiliser at this time of year. Rabobank agricultural analyst Wes Lafroy says not many people saw this big rise coming. It is fair to say that, that really the global fertiliser markets have erupted in, in recent weeks and it has taken most by surprise. And I, and I think one of the difficulties really is that Australia is so dependent on global markets. So we do use the, the global uh, price indicators to, to signal what's going on here locally. And then, of course, it, it's up to the local farmers here to make sure they're in uh, close communication once, with their suppliers once it hits our shores. So how much has the, the, the global price indicators gone up? So really, we did see global phosphate prices in particular actually at 10-year lows uh, to the middle of last year in, in US dollar terms. Now, we did see them pick up. Uh, and, and then we saw, uh, once we hit the new year, we actually saw a big increase in prices. So for example, in the US, where a, a lot of the, this price uh, increase has been focused pre, uh, around the phosphates, we've actually seen a, a 36% uh, increase in DAP prices, uh, FOB, from the US Gulf. So that's pretty significant increase in, in global benchmark. What's made it go up so much? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of factors which has really pushed phosphate prices up. Now, in particular, this is well and truly a demand-led rally. Now, we've seen a, a big increase in particular uh, for a lot of global grains and all seeds prices. Some now are actually at their highest point since 2014. So this increase in demand has been most pronounced in the US. Now, we've seen farmers there, in particular after years of low and even in some cases actually negative margins, that they've taken this opportunity ahead of their new season to replenish some of their soil nutrients ahead of the new crop. Now, what we've also seen actually on the supply side, again, in the US, is that we've seen the US Department of Commerce actually publish countervailing duties as high as 47% against phosphate fertiliser from Morocco and, and Russia. Now, that was actually filed last June, but we did see them published actually uh, earlier this year as well. So, so that's also contributed to, to uh, an increase in, in domestic prices. Sorry, uh, an increase in global price. Well, yeah, on that note, like you say, it can be a bit difficult to figure out how direct that filter is then, how it filters through to, to farmers here. Yeah, absolutely. So we do use the global uh, price as a benchmark here f for local price movements. But I think in particular... The focus of, of Australian growers is obviously on phosphate and we have actually been getting an increased uh, share of imports from China. So it's actually been increasing year on year uh, since 2017 to 64% to actually in 2020. Uh, that, that's monoammonium phosphate or, or MAP. Now, we've actually seen China have some supply issues as well in, in terms of rising cost of raw materials. And we've also seen domestic supply, which has impacted their export availability. So from that respect, we've seen the fact that China has had uh, a limited amount of exports available. Uh, and with respect to that, we've seen you know, some actually Australian suppliers unclear on, on when their next available cargo would be.
Well, I was just about to ask on that note on the, I guess we've talked a bit about the supply side of things, but on the, about the demand side of things, I should say, but on the supply side, is availability becoming an area of some concern? I think it is an area of concern. Now, now this does vary from region to region. So want to make sure that the key message really here is that growers are in communication with their suppliers, depending on which side of the country they're in and, and which supplier they're using. And also, of course, as well, which, which region uh, they're in as well. So, mm. so that, that, that does vary. We have seen an increase in that global benchmark, which will flow through to local prices. But, but in particular, we've seen some suppliers in, in Morocco as well now booked out uh, till the end of April. So we are now actually in our uh, peak importing period for MAP in particular. So on average, we actually get around 90% of our MAP imports come in between November uh, and May as well. So we're right in the middle of our peak importing period. And it is good news that to the end of December, our MAP imports were actually ahead of the last four years. So we've seen an increase in imports, uh, but I think the key message is to make sure growers are in communication with, with their suppliers. 21 past 12, that's Wes Lafroy. He's a senior agricultural analyst at Rabobank, speaking with Nikolai Bailharts about the recent rise in the global price of fertiliser. Just before the update from the newsroom, I want to take you to one of the big events on the grains calendar, which is underway in Perth today. It's the start of the two-day 2021 GRDC Grains Research Update. And the program includes all the latest grains R&D, um, innovation, market opportunities. And Tara DeLandgraft is at the event. Tara, planning any event has been pretty tricky lately with all the COVID travel restrictions in place. And I guess there was a, a little bit of a nervous wait just to see if this event was actually going to happen. Yeah, as you mentioned, Belle, of course, Perth and the Southwest coming out of lockdown really quite recently and it was a little bit nerve-wracking for organisers to actually work out uh, how this event would go ahead, if it would go ahead in person. It has. Uh, there are just shy of 600 people who have actually registered. I think 590 was the last count I heard. Um, and so far today, uh, the, the group, the room, uh, it's set up a little bit different to in years past. We've got tables and chairs and social distancing and all that kind of thing to keep in mind. Um, but of course heard from Darren Lee who is the uh, Western Panel Chairman. Uh, he touched on some things that have been happening locally in the last 12 months and then John Woods also uh, who is the National Chairman of the GRDC touched on the last 8 to 10 months in particular managing investments uh, during this difficult time and he, he did mention a couple of times how difficult it has been the last sort of 8 to 10 months during COVID. Um, and in particular some of the, the big picture investments that have gone on. But really in this first session today, looking at climate change and some of the opportunities that have been there for, for farmers, uh, one person referred to it as the inconvenient truth when we heard from Mark Howden, who's the director of the Climate Change Institute at the Australian National University, looking at further changes in operating environment and the likelihood for it to be hotter and drier using the Bureau of Meteorology data and then analysing it and putting that out, uh, looking at where we may be in the next 20 years, 
30 years and 40 years. And then we heard from Elizabeth O'Leary. Now, Liz is the head of aquaculture at Macquarie Investment and Real Assets. So they run businesses such as Lawson Grain here in, in Western Australia and Viridis Ag. She grew up on a farm herself and she addressed some of those things that Mark Howden was talking about where, you know, looking at, at the situation going to be hotter and drier and from her experience from that infrastructure and real assets what investors are actually looking at and talking about some of the key opportunities for farmers to get on the front foot to actually be part of of this change um, and becoming carbon neutral some of the the big labels and companies are doing it she's saying farmers need to do it as well it's not just a niche Um, there's government regulation in place US as we know last week is back on board with the Paris Agreement so there are things that are happening and um, she discussed looking at ways that Australian farmers can be part of it, Belle, which did cause um, some very robust discussion during question time. Well, I can imagine so. So with the carbon aside, obviously that was quite a, a focal point of discussion so far, but what about some of the other big topics on the agenda? Yeah, so some of those big picture topics, um, including market focus this morning, so looking at some of the opportunities in Vietnam and India, um, some of the real agronomy-based stuff, so um, varieties also discussed this morning and the, the, the trade-off in wheat varieties, um, looking at, at a profit and, and risk, as we all know, is one of those eternal questions that, that farmers wrestle with, as well as crop production, disease, soils, nutrition, that kind of thing. So really getting into the nitty-gritty after looking at that really big picture stuff earlier this morning and um, of course uh, for the rest of the day farmers will uh, go out into to the little groups of whatever their, um, their interests lie and um, learn more from those who have been doing research over the last 12 months. And one of the highlights always at the crop updates is to find out who the Seed of Light Award winner is and of course this is the person that's made a really big contribution to the grains industry. Who is it this time round Tara? So this year, Belle, the, um, the 2021 Seed of Light Award winner for Western Australia is agricultural engineer Ben White. Now, I think everybody in regional WA is familiar with Ben. Um, he is the Condinan Group's research manager and editor of Farming Ahead. He has done so much research across Western Australia over his many, many years. So it's a very well-deserved award. This year, though, there was a second award, uh, which is the Seed of Gold Bell. Now, that award has only been given out three times before, so this is the fourth time the award has actually been uh, awarded, and the first time it's been awarded here in Western Australia as well. And and that's for somebody who's essentially um, dedicated their entire life, or, the, or their, uh, their working life, I should say, to services to the grains industry. And this year, or this time around, that was awarded to global herbicide resistance expert Stephen Powers, Emeritus Professor Stephen Powers, who I spoke spoke to a short time ago. Where do we start? I suppose you've been named as the inaugural West Australian recipient of the Seed of Gold. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. It's a a great honour because uh, it's from the GRDC and uh, therefore obviously the grains industry and I'm part of the grains industry, so nothing like peer recognition. Now, your name is is obviously synonymous with herbicide resistance and herbicide resistance research. Why was that an area that that you chose to focus on all those decades ago, Steve? I did agriculture, studied ag science, and then 
a master's in crop science and then a PhD getting more into basic research, photosynthesis and biochemistry. And then I did a postdoc, a couple of postdocs overseas. And I was getting further away from agriculture and I was doing this research and there was only about three people in the world interested in it. One was my mother, one was my sister, <laughs> one was my wife. And, uh, and so I thought, I've got to get back to agriculture. And I spent a long time uh, thinking about what area to get into. And I saw the first cases of resistance when I was living in the US and then in Europe. And I thought, this is going to be a problem and it's going to be a problem in Australia because we use a lot of herbicides. Maybe this is this was back in 1983, uh, and and uh, of course I I made the correct decision with hindsight, and it, it did explode and become a real problem. And I I was lucky enough then to be in the right place at the right time, and and uh, was able with great support from GRDC and farmers and everybody else to really bit, build a big program. So. It's been both intellectually satisfying and also um, practical outcomes which have been very personally satisfying. There have been some recent breakthroughs in, in literally the last few weeks, but for so long did you sort of feel like you were fighting a losing battle there? Yes, in the early days, um, back in 1983 and onwards, herbicide resistance was unknown except there was only one or two paddocks in Australia and many people would just look at you and say, are you telling me plants can develop resistance to herbicides? Now imagine a young person listening to that comment now. Mm. They would hardly be able to imagine that uh, someone could say that, but that was the situation. And uh, we had this great faith in herbicides and that they'd work forever, and yet we know that biology doesn't work like that. Of course, herbicides are fantastic. I love them but only when they work. Now, of course, you've attended updates this week thinking you're retired, you won't have to spend some time at the lectern, and this award has meant that that's not the case. But what, what do you think your legacy will be now, now that you have retired from the industry? Well, retired from research in the industry, I should say. Oh, well, uh, in part, the, the, the legacy is all of the students, former students that um, are now integral and vibrant parts of our industry. Um, I've had the good fortune to have had about uh, well over 30 PhD students that have all gone on to good careers and about 20 postdoctoral fellows and about 100, well maybe I'm exaggerating, but a lot of honour students. So they're all at various places in, in the industry and uh, of course I can look back on some of the developments that we've worked on that have uh, that we've researched uh, harvest weed seed control our great collaboration with ray harrington and all of the harrington seed destructor and all of that great satisfaction seeing that really making a difference uh, i was the one that um, convinced a little company in japan to let us play with a chemical now known as sakura and uh, we did the early work and that's been a great success so Things like that give it a lot of satisfaction. Well, Steve, once again, congratulations. Thank you, Tara. Adjunct Professor Stephen Pals, who received the Seed of Gold Award at today's GRDC Grains Research Updates. She's currently underway in Perth. Tara DeLandcraft is there and she's basically set up camp for the next couple of days. So you will hear from her and some of those key discussions at the updates across the Rural Report in the South and also here on the Country Hour.
It is 28 to 1 and Ellie Colvin is here with an update from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. A fourth woman has made allegations about a former Morrison government staff member who's at the centre of a political crisis rocking Parliament House. The woman, who's going to remain anonymous, says the man touched her leg inappropriately in a popular Canberra bar in 2017. Brittany Higgins last week alleged she was raped by the same man in the now Defence Minister Linda Reynolds' office two years ago. The Premier Mark McGowan says he and other officials will wait their turn to receive the COVID-19 vaccination so frontline workers and those given priority can get theirs. Two hotel quarantine nurses became the first in WA to receive the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Mr McGowan says he'll get vaccinated in a few months as scheduled due to the limited number available initially. WA Liberal power broker Peter Collier says he doesn't believe the swing against the Liberals in the state will be as catastrophic as predicted by a weekend news poll. The poll predicts a Liberal wipeout, with Labor ahead of the opposition by 68% to 32 on a two-party preferred basis. Mr Collier says the impact of COVID-19 has seen Labor's popularity increase, but he doesn't believe the swing will be as significant as the polling suggests. Thanks, Belinda. More news at one. Thank you for that update, Ali. It is 27 to 1. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. Earlier in the hour, talking about the skyrocketing price of fertilisers, and this through from Mike in Cogenup on the text saying that just on those fertiliser price increases, your experts seem to bumble his way through various reasons for it. Fundamentally, it is purely price gouging and a Royal Commission should be set up to investigate importers. Thank you for your thoughts, Mike, and you can be part of the conversation too on text 0448 922 604. Between now and one o'clock, off to Mushay for the results of the cattle market and spending a little bit of time on a few farms in the southern part of the state just to see how they're coping with the, uh, well, clear reduction in rainfall over the last sort of 10 or so years and how they're changing their businesses to cope with that. Right now it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Nor Pusey, how's it looking across northern and eastern parts? Hi, Belinda. Yeah, it's um, pretty good for the most part. Uh, the, the high pressure ridge lies south of the state. That's the dominating feature with the trough near the west coast. Basically, clear conditions throughout the southern and eastern half of the state. And in the north, uh, shower and thunderstorm activity perhaps uh, today through the north and east Kimberley and perhaps a little bit uh, just along the, the Pilbara as well. And that's probably true for the next day or two as well. Generally, easterly winds are uh, throughout and there is a tropical low that lies uh, uh, in the just to the the west of the the top end, sort of uh, west of Darwin, and we'll move slowly, sort of to the west over the next few days, and we'll see that track uh, to the north of the Kimberley, and then continue uh, moving west uh, away from the the uh, WA coast for at least the next uh, sort of six to seven days. So, uh, so some rainfall increasing in the next few days over the North Kimberley there, with some heavier falls, uh, chances some um, severe storms, perhaps uh, late. Uh, on Tuesday and into Wednesday, but uh, it's really not having a major effect on anything un- unusual weather-wise for, for this time of the year up there. But in, in the south here, the uh, the main feature is the west coast trough uh, deepening 
today and remains near the west coast for the next day or so with very hot temperatures near the west coast uh, as the winds uh, come in from the east and then uh, we'll see that trough move inland briefly on Wednesday but back to the sort of near the west coast for the rest of the week so maintaining high temperatures in the west and uh, pretty much uh, no rainfall in the south uh, expected for the next sort of three or four days maybe five days at least anyway with the ridge south of the state uh, coolish near the south coast but otherwise warming up as the, the, the winds move anticyclonically around the, the high and come back towards uh, the, the west coast near Perth. All right then, Noel. So straight on to the warnings then for today? Yeah, uh, fire with the warnings today for parts of the Gascoigne and Central West District uh, that's the, in the sort of associated with the trough and the sea breeze and uh, hot temperatures up there and then uh, we've got coastal wind warnings along the uh, the south coast, uh, really from Cape Lewin to Albany and also just uh, the section between Bremer Bay and Esperance as well. Thank you so much, Noel. Appreciate that. This is The Country Hour on ABC WA. It's 23 to 1 and Richard Hudson here now with a look at the rainfall figures over the weekend. Yeah, there aren't too many to get through. The majority, again, in the northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, Anna Plains, 10, Bidjidanga, 49, Country Downs, 10, Dampier Downs had 15, Debisa, 21, Fitzroy Crossing, 15, Fossil Downs, 8, Gogo Station, 15, Jubilee Downs, 13, Columbaroo, 5, Kimbolton, 27, Mount Krause, 5, Morida had 16, Nita Downs, 14, Troughton Island, 28, Truscott, 15, and West Roebuck, 17. In the Pilbara, Carlindy, 42, Coolawanya, 9, De Grey, 6, Emu Creek Station, 15, Glen Flory Station, 7, over four days, Karajini North, 19, Caratha, 5, Mount Florence, 34, Mount Stewart, 10, Pardue, 20, Port Hedland, 5, Red Hill, 32, Telford, 13, Wallarina, 29, Warrawagine, 38, Wailu 9, Yaleen 12, Yarry 40 and then in the Gascoigne, Doorawarra had another 30 which they'd be pretty happy about. That was the only one at five and above there. And then nothing recorded for the interior goldfields, Eucla or out on the islands. And then for the entire southwest land division forecast districts, nothing actually worth mentioning. We do have a few fire bans today, though. So total fire ban has been declared for today for parts of the Perth metro region, namely Armadale, Chittering, Gingin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jarradale and Swan. Uh, 2J has a total fire ban in place as well, so that's in the Goldfields Midlands region. And in the southwest region, Murray and Waruna also have total fire bans in place today. So that includes any activity that could start a fire is banned. Uh, so solid fuel barbecues, pizza ovens and campfires, no off-road driving. That includes quad bikes, motorbikes. Farm vehicle work is only allowed where there's no harvest and vehicle movement ban and under the total fire ban you must have an exemption permit to do hot work such as welding, grinding and soldering. And for more information on total fire bans, just do a search for Total Fire Ban WA and you'll find the appropriate website. It's the Emergency WA website. Um, Also, just quickly, uh, due to the risk of fire... A few local authorities have imposed a ban on harvesting and the use of any equipment which could potentially cause a fire. So it's more the latter part of that sentence. 
and that's the Shire of Mundaring and the City of Swan. If you'd like more detailed information, including zones and any other restrictions or the lifting of harvest bans, then just contact your local government. So just repeating, there's a total fire ban today for parts of Perth, Goldfields, Midlands and the southwest, and harvest bans for Mundaring and Swan. That's it. Congratulations, by the way, Richard, on your... Was it your 10th Rottnest swim? I've lost, that many. I've lost track of how many, actually. <laughs> I've, I've swum and paddled it, but, but, yeah, Saturdays was one of the hardest, though, I can tell you. <laughs> well, you made it. Just. By, by about... Between 10 and 15 minutes, we made it before the cut-off point. <laughs> oh, well done. Just over the line. This is the Country Hour, 20 minutes to one. Now, you hear the term climate change very often throughout the day, mentioned on the news. Uh, Whether you're a believer or not, it's clear that on farms in the southern half of Western Australia, rainfall totals have been declining, especially in the winter growing months. Now, for some farms, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Shortly, you'll hear from an agronomist who works in the Franklin Cojanup area, where some farmers are not only coping, they're doing well by switching from livestock to grain. But farmers in WA's eastern wheat belt are not so chirpy about getting less rain. Annalisa Newman helps run a livestock and cropping operation at Varley, about 350 kilometres southeast of Perth. She says the last three winters have been very dry and difficult to manage. This particular dry period is, is a little bit more sustained than what we've experienced. Um, we have had yeah, lower rainfall years in the past, but it just hasn't gone on for quite so long as this one. But then we've also had quite extreme rainfall events like the 2017 flood-type rain that came through and caused a heap of damage south of Lake King. So I just I think it's just becoming a, a lot more extreme-like in, its, in, in what's happening. So um, overall, we're seeing a, a trending figure of, of slightly lowering rainfalls, nothing dramatic, but slightly more in the, in the summer, summer periods. We're getting a bit more rain through the summer period than in our growing season. So it's a subtle trend, but it's more so the, the extremes of the events that we're having to manage a lot more than we have done. You mentioned the dry you're in right now. Like, what sort of uh, spell are you in? Yeah, look, we're in our third year in a row now of nearly 100 mil below growing um, an average rainfall. So, yeah, you know, 60 to 100 mils below um, for three years. So, is that significant in this part of the world? Yeah, look, we haven't ever had this many dams dry up. So, and that's quite common. You talk to a lot of older farmers, and they've had dams that have never dried up that they're they're managing now is empty so it is significant it's just been i think the consequence of having three dry seasons back to back which is it's quite if you look back over our records it's quite unheard of um so that's yeah, it's understandable the pressure that we're all under at the moment you've just got to be try and keep in front of it and that's the the hard bit like um reacting to, to trends you don't want to jump too soon but you, you want to be uh, if it is a trend you want to be reacting as quickly as you can so yeah adapting our, our management practices to conserve rainfall in summer for our, our cropping enterprises has been something that's been adopted more and more you know dry sowing our crops we've reacted quite quickly and um, to good effect with our cropping enterprises um, In terms of rainfall, it's not quite so simple. There's only so much we can do to capture rain for our livestock enterprise and um, 
a lot of us have, have done everything we possibly can aside from that next level of in, in investment which can be quite significant. Now you run sheep here obviously and reasonably significant numbers of sheep. How is the task of managing a flock in this sort of environment? Every farm is having a different experience. We've all had different uh, rainfall events that have meant different things um, across farms. So um, ours sort of crept up on us. Um, the fellows over towards Newdigate Way probably were a, a, a summer in front of us, carting probably a good a summer earlier than where we had to. We had some residual rainfall um, in dams in different areas that we were able to shuffle around for just one summer longer. But um, last year in particular we were, were carting quite a, quite a bit and then um, and this year the carting has just started a bit you know, earlier and uh, we've certainly tipped off a lot of sheep previous year and a few more this year, sort of probably just slowly contracting our mated ewe flock in line with what we're comfortable to carry because it's just it's not summer, it's, it's the pasture growth in, in season when you don't get your in-season rainfall either. What do you think you're going to need to do longer term? With, you know, obviously within the confines of what you can reasonably see, do you expect you'll have to keep reducing numbers or do you think that is that just not something you really want to do? You, you cross those bridges when you get to them. Um, we do have strategies in place and, and lines in the sand where um, we know if, if it becomes too much to manage financially because it comes down to sort of enough people around to, to run water and, and if water is cannot be sourced then yeah you don't have choices so but in the meantime um, we will work with what we've got we've still got a few options up our sleeve at the moment while we wait for this next rain but yeah I think strategies going forward um, some of those bigger investments it might be wise for us to look at doing that to be a bit more protected from these kinds of things in the future. When you say those bigger investments, what sort of investments are you talking about? Yeah, following the, the desal uh, technology quite closely, uh, I think it's changing rapidly and, and the costs involved with those sort of projects, just wanting to understand a little bit more longer term how they look. You know, when, it, when it's rained here, there's been places where we think, yep, love another dam there. So um, the dams have served us well and certainly a few more that we could easily put in. It's just uh, it's a significant cost. Varley farmer Annalisa Newman catching up with Daniel Mercer, 14 to 1. Well, in recent times, some farms closer to the state's southwest have also received less winter rain, but that has provided some opportunities. Tim Tresize is an agronomist who farms in the Franklin Cojanup area, which is three and a half hours south of Perth. He says his area was once considered too wet for some crops but it's now a major producer of grain. There's a lot less stock, a lot more crop. Uh, it's not just recently, probably been creeping up for the last 10 years, but people are, are serious about their cropping. You know, they're, they're, they're employing technologies that, that the wheat belt have traditionally done, like, you know, tramlining, control traffic, all those sorts of things, getting rid of um, rock piles and, you know, single paddock trees that lower your efficiencies so they're serious about it and and I guess when I first got here cropping was something they were dabbling in and it was quite simple back then because it wasn't a major part of the farm and and the pressure wasn't on because the scale wasn't that big but it's flipped around now. Before your time and certainly even when you first got here people weren't cropping that much but why not? It was too wet (laughs) and they didn't and back then no-till was probably just starting so you can imagine a wet winter ripping up and working back a couple of times and then trying to get back on the paddock to seed it put people off pretty quick it was yeah it was it was you know probably the wet and 
it has been a drying climate, like a drying climate. And um, in the winters, you know, if, if you read some of the climate stuff, the winters are getting drier. We're still having good years, but the, the winters are getting a bit drier, which means it's better for trafficability for us, which sort of falls into our hands a bit. We've had five relatively dry years in, in Franklin and Koji, and that's been good for cropping. Like, we've had good production years because it's been dry. 2016, I remember trying to get a crop in. Every time it rained during seeding, we got 40 or 50 mil. It, it was it was so wet and it was so hard to get the crop in. You know, that was only four, four seasons ago, five years ago. But, you know, so we can still have wet, wet, wet years. It's, you know, so, and, and we will continue to get wet years, I think. But we have had a dry cycle the last four years and, it, and that has played into our hands. Who knows, are we going to get four wet years for the next four years and we're pulling our hair out? Yeah, we don't know that, do we? But, yeah, we'll see. How, how much is climate and how much is technological and technical improvements? Oh, no, you can't underestimate that agriculture is exciting. Right? Um, there's, there's some great genetics coming through in, in crops. We've got a, a lot better genetics in, in our canolas and our barleys and our wheats that, that suit the high rainfall. That's, that's a big tick. We're getting a lot better with soil nutrition and fertilisers and, and a lot more confidence around that because we're getting good results. So people are happy to push their, their nutrition and, you know, and getting good results from that. And as far as um, weeds and fungicides, there's some great products there that, that are helping us too to keep these paddocks clean. I mean, weeds are a big issue in the high rainfall. It's wet for a long period of time and the weeds don't mind popping up you know, well into the season. So there's so many good things that are coming into agriculture that these guys, are, they're, they're upbeat, willing to adapt, and they're getting, they're getting some good results. So, yeah, it's, I don't think it's just climate. Coaching up Franklin grower Tim Tresize with Daniel Mercer. That story is up online now on the ABC Rural website. 11 minutes to one. The market's not far away. A wrap of the Muche cattle market for you. First, though, it looks like Western Australia's Midwest region could soon have a green hydrogen project up and running. Infinite Blue Energy plans to use wind and solar power to make hydrogen at Arrowsmith, which is about 300 kilometres north of Perth. Managing Director Stephen Gould is confident a final investment of $350 million will be finalised very soon. We're looking to commence production um, probably late April 2022. Uh, we're looking to produce uh, approximately uh, four to five tonnes of uh, green hydrogen a day. Um, and then we'll uh, expand that um, over the next nine, ten months to uh, to deliver a further 20 tonnes. So uh, we're targeting 25 tonnes a day by the end of 2022. So just under two years away, we, we should be able to uh, have Aerosmith uh, coming through the commissioning and uh, ready to, to sell to the market uh, uh, the, uh, the, the larger quantities of green hydrogen. Can you give me an idea of how much um, energy that is? Like how many vehicles could it power or homes or something that I can wrap my head around? The initial production is targeted uh, uh, heavy vehicles. So to consume 25 tonnes of green hydrogen a day equates to 274 prime movers. So uh, 25 tonnes a day, 270 uh, five um, prime mover road trains. So when you think of that way, it's not a lot of trucks considering on in- Interstate 95 from Perth to uh, uh, Port Hedland, 
uh, one of the fuel stations there, Q Roadhouse. Q Roadhouse has 500 trucks that stop at Q Roadhouse every day for uh, refueling of uh, diesel. So uh, if we can convert 50% of that trucks to hydrogen uh, that stop at that fuel station, then that's all of the production gone at one fuel station in WA. So that's how big the, the market and opportunity is. So a lot of people think, Aerosmith, oh, that's quite a big plant. But when you look at the demand, uh, the production can fill and refuel only 275 vehicles. So it's a small capacity. It lets you see the market uh, size that's available as we transition from uh, conventional petrol, diesel and, and gas uh, that we, uh, we use. Green hydrogen has been getting a lot of attention lately as a possible new major industry in, in Western Australia. And you've just been talking about, I guess, the size of, of the market. Is your project a test case of sorts? No. Uh, the first project we're doing, Aerosmith uh, Foundation, um, that, that's to uh, demonstrate to, to the market that uh, the, the viability of green hydrogen and also liquefaction. So um, Aerosmith Stage 2 is targeted for export. So to prove the uh, uh, export market, uh, Aerosmith Stage 1 is key uh, to expand uh, the uh, facility. So for Aerosmith Stage 2, we're looking to increase the capacity from 25 tonnes a day to total uh, uh, production of 140 tonnes a day. So uh, um, the, the incremental production is going to be heading to Asia Pacific, and that's all going to be based on liquid hydrogen. Once we have Aerosmith Stage 2 uh, coming through, which is a target for 2025, we're also um, working on additional Asia Pacific markets for uh, expansion to Aerosmith Stage 3. So we have a strategic roadmap of the journey ahead of us uh, for Dongara um, and the Midwest area. Stephen Gould, he is the Managing Director and the CEO of Infinite Blue Energy, speaking there with Lucinda Jose. Seven minutes to one. Hello, I'm Samantha Donovan. Please join me for the world today. Game Changer hopes we may be nearing the end of the pandemic as the vaccine rolls out across the country. We're now on the offensive. You know, we're no longer acting defensively against this. We're actually on the offensive and that's it's an amazing day. And more pressure on the federal government after a third woman reports she was sexually assaulted by the same adviser accused of raping Brittany Higgins. Those stories and more on The World Today. Six minutes to one and it's off to the markets now and about... 1,550 head of cattle sold at the Mouchet sale yards this morning. So the numbers were down, well, about 800 on last week's. But it was a better quality yarding. John Testro's at the sale yard, which are just north of Perth. And John, I'm assuming prices remained quite high with less numbers and the better quality. Would that be right? Yeah, good afternoon, Belinda. You've got it in one. Uh, the quality of cattle... Uh, was very good. Most cattle presented in forward to prime condition. But uh, today, the New South Wales competition was very strong on wiener cattle, and they gained 25 cents a kilo. Yearling steers to the trade were up by 60 cents, quality driven. Grown steers gained 10 cents, with uh, grown heifers back 20 cents. And that was probably a quality issue on those grown heifers. Cow market gained 15 to uh, 20 cents. And live export demand for bulls saw gains of 35 cents on the lightweights, seven on the medium weights, and 25 cents a kilo on the heavies. But local processors, not to be outdone, paid an extra 10 cents for their heavy prime bull purchases. So I'll run through the details for you, Belinda. 
In the uh, wiener portion of the yarding, the local wieners used to feed us. They sold from 4.20 to 4.58, up 25 cents. Corresponding pastoral wiener steers sold at 3.66 cents, up by 20. Local wiener heifers sold from 3.80 to 4.80, and the pastoral wiener heifers that sold at 3.50 to 3.96 were 50 cents dearer. Yearling steers uh, local to the trade sold at 3.98, up by 60 cents, quality driven, with uh, not many penned of those types. But the pastoral's at 3.86 also gained 50 cents. Local yearling heifers to the trade, uh, 296 to 380, up 20 cents, with parcels at uh, 376, again 20 cents nearer. Grown steers, 500 kilos plus, uh, good selection of those. They sold from 370 to 374, up by 10 cents. And as I said before, the grown heifers ease 20 cents, quality driven. They sold from 332 to 338. In the cow market, uh, we saw some good gains here. Medium weight score twos to processors sold from 226 to 268 up by 15 cents, and the prime to processors, they sold from 278 to 328, up 20 cents for the medium and heavyweights. In the bull market, uh, live export very strong today. Uh, they paid from 300 to 442 for the lightweights, they were up by 35 cents. Medium weight range, 450 to 600 kilos. Th at uh, 316, we're up by seven, and the prime heavy to live export sold at 290 to 316, up by 25. And the processors paid from 260 to 314 and were up uh, 10 cents. So once again, a very, very strong sale at uh, Mouche and predominantly pushed by New South Wales on the light cattle, Belinda. Yeah, so the livestock still continues to trek across to the eastern states by the sounds, John. And um, just before you go, I hear that farmers who sold at Friday's buoyant up cattle sale left with some big smiles on their faces. Yeah, the agents uh, reported that uh, the cattle were up $550 a head on the February store sale uh, of last year. So very, very strong sale. Winners rose $0.30, cents and the Frisian and Frisian cross feeder steers were up by $0.25. Cents. And the winner steers, they sold at uh, $400 to $0.650 to average an incredible four ninety five, And the winner heifers, 380 to 530 up by... Uh, uh, average 4.40, also up 30 cents. And as I said, those Frisian and Frisian cross feeder steers, the Frisians 260 to 366, average 3.46, and the Frisian cross, uh, Frisian Angus cross, 352 to 400, average 3.79, all up 25 cents on those lines there. But uh, I believe, Linda, it's a realisation that uh, nearly 70% of the sell off cattle in the uh, Great Southern and Southwest are sold between November and March. And uh, there's now a desperation to secure numbers with no evidence of a price taper in sight. So uh, job's going to stay pretty strong for a while while that New South Wales contingent keep uh, punching at us. But uh, that's all for today, Belinda. I'm John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the ABC. John, thank you so much for going through those details, not only at Mouche, but a little look at what happened at Friday's Boyin' Up cattle sale too. It's about a minute away from the news at one and you can check on a couple of stories you heard today here on The Country Hour. The online stories are up, some great photos, a really good read. Um, right at the top of the hour, you heard about the uh, fishing and aquatic groups that are now or really just waiting to see what sort of impact the latest marine heat wave is going to have 
on their industries. This It's a huge stretch of the coast, really from Broome in the north to Rottnest Island, and it can only be sort of a, a change of a couple of degrees in the temperature, a little warmer than usual for this time of year, but it can have huge consequences. So check that out. Just search Marine Heat Wave WA ABC. You'll find that story. And the other one, looking at the climate change and the effect on farms here in WA, search Climate Change Farms WA ABC and have a read through. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.